The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 204 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We've got a fantastic conversation coming up. But first of all, we do want to thank two new reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Uh, The Apple listener names are Imagination8000 and Stephen John Terry. I'm not sure if that's one name or Stephen John and Terry, three people. But whoever you are, thank you so much for your five-star review as well as Imagination8000. I loved what you wrote. It was just so touching. Thank you both so much and for the five-star reviews which really help us to be found. We are now up to 592 ratings, maintaining a 4.7 out of five stars. We thank you so much for everyone who takes the time to do that. This week, my guest on the show is Helen Post, the former executive director of the Utah Parent Center, and what amazing work she has done throughout her life and throughout her career. She has literally just changed the lives of thousands of people through her work, through the work that uh, the center does. And over the years, our producer, Gene Chittister, and his wonderful wife, Robin, have gotten to know Helen very well. They've done a lot of work with her. And they introduced us to Helen, and we are so grateful that they have that connection, and now we do as well. And coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, is it the happiest place on earth? It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today on the Latter-day Lives podcast, you know, one of my favorite things about the scriptures is it talks about servants and people who serve and people who make the world a better place. And today my guest has made the world such a better place, has served so many and touched so many lives. Helen Post, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so grateful to have you join us. We are going to talk so much about uh, the civic work and the service that you've given to so many but first, like always, we need to get to know you. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I'm sitting in a place not very far from where I started. Um, maybe to start back even before I was here, I'm proudly of pioneer heritage. I am mm. the descendant of a second wife and a faithful pioneer family. Uh, my father's side of the family came from Switzerland, and my mother's from England and Wales, all converts to the church. Uh, that sweet ancestor who came from Switzerland was sent immediately to southern Utah, where he helped to settle the St. George area in Las Vegas. Um, some settled up here in northern Utah and, and all over the west from there. But so many of my deepest roots and my strongest connections to the past come through um, my attachments to Southern Utah. So beautiful. We've we've often said though, can you imagine leaving the green hills of Switzerland and ending up in St. George? (laughs) Just (laughs) just talk talk about a foreign country. Yes. Um, So, uh, but I'm a lifelong member or a resident of the Salt Lake Valley, I have lived within a few miles of the home that I was 
born in all of those years ago. And mostly I've been here because I say I've never had a reason to leave. I, you nice. know, I've just, whether it was school or work or whatever, we were always just here. And so this is very much my home. And um, as an adult, I've always been particularly interested in wherever, making wherever I am as good as I can make it. And that's something that was ingrained in me from a very young age. Um, I am a part of a very large family and an extended family, actually, that for my own parents, they have 190 descendants and growing. What? 190? (laughs) There are a bunch of us. So families are complicated for sure. And I'm so grateful for these relationships that we have. My parents were just remarkable, faithful, hardworking, loving people. And when I tell you how many children they have, you'll understand why. I want to share a little anecdote, though. They met in the mission field in the Western States Mission. My father was um, one of the elders that was a supervising elder at the time, um, and they ended up getting married. But we had all three of his, he and his two brothers and sisters all had marriages that came from that mission so we owe a lot to that experience that they had. They all have connections to that. Um, but once they did get married, the, I'm the seventh of 10 children, nine that survived to adulthood. Um, and I have five brothers and three sisters. I don't know how my mom did it. You know, she, it was quite a remarkable thing. But for me, that kind of played out to be I almost felt like I had to be a little bit better and try a little bit harder and and do well so that my parents didn't have to worry about me. Because I'll just say that we weren't all, all angels all the time. So I tried. I know that I certainly was not perfect by any means, but that that meant being a good student and trying to do those things and and going to church, doing the things that my parents asked me to do. And the house that I grew up in was in a, a really a small, relatively humble home. It was a starter home that was built for the soldiers coming home from World War II. And that starter home was where my parents spent 54 years until wow. they moved in with us. And so 900 square feet on the main floor. And only half of the basement under that was finished until I was in high school. So more than half the family was ahead of me. And dad added the second bathroom then. So wait, 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 wait. Second, <laughs> the second, second bathroom. bathroom. Yeah. So you had what? There was at one 11, point well, eleven of us. Yeah. All sharing the one bathroom. <laughs> how, how how regimented did this have to be? Oh, it was that was probably the toughest thing in the house. It was fighting over the bathroom and time in there and everything too. But uh, you know, somehow we survived. We lived in a neighborhood where all the houses were smaller and. There were several very large families around us, and it's kind of what we knew, and it's what we had, and so you make do and you make the best of it, and those aren't bad lessons to learn either. Well, and so I shared a bedroom. I mean, we the bedrooms in the house were eight by eight. I mean, you could barely put a bed on them, and, <laughs> and so and I shared a bedroom with three of my sisters for most of the time growing up until I was I got I was the first kid to get my own room too, so that was. It was just kind of what we knew. Um, and so we were together whether we wanted to be together or not. <laughs> but it also meant, though, that so reading or doing things like that were free, for one thing, in that large family. And secondly, that um, we could we walked to the library in Sugar House, the Sprague Branch Library, and I would get as many books as I could carry. And I think I always just learned 
I learned very young to appreciate and love learning. And so that that kind of got me there. But I, I thought we did a lot of stuff outside too. So reading was something I could do inside or outside or all of all of the places that you can find a little niche that's quiet to accomplish that. But I, I still love to read. And and you know, I think back to my parents and how what it took for them to even have us all survive and do that. Dad was a hard worker, he did a lot of different things. He could make anything, do anything, fix anything. And if he fixed it or made it, it would never wear out. It was so well made. He was amazing. And my mom was at home with us until we were all in school. And then she went back to work part-time. She was a skilled professional as an administrative assistant, a secretary. And um, she went back to work so that my older brother could go on a mission. And um, so while we're talking about things that are unusual in this day and age, my mother never drove a car. She didn't ever have a driver's license with all of those kids. So we also learned to, if you needed to go somewhere, we got on the bus and went. And sometimes it was alone. I remember going downtown. It wasn't child abuse either. It was just what we did. <laughs> sure. We we would ride the bus downtown to the, to the dentist's office, uh, the, that kind of thing. Mom didn't drive. And so we didn't, we just figured out how to get around where we needed to be. And she, I, again, I marvel that we did all the things that we could, but we, we walked to where we went and those kinds of things too. Again, I believe that those experiences, little that I know at the time, I didn't love it all the time. It helps to make you appreciate things in a different way as you grow older. Um, I imagine. And, and what we do at that. So we, we always had what we needed. We didn't have a lot, but we always had what we needed. And um, that was a great blessing. And, and, you know, all of those things that we learned in our family, then because of those things, we learned that working is important. We all had jobs. We had assignments in the house, in the yard, all of those kinds of things. Suddenly, you know, you're growing up quite a bit. How were your high school years? Well, I, I loved high school. That was kind of fun. Um, I, I, had the opportunity to be in pep club. And that's something that a lot of people can't relate to much anymore. We had, there were 60 girls in it and I was in it for a couple of years and had the chance to be uh, the president one year. So I was a rah-rah kind of, we sat on the stands (laughs) and did things, but we also marched and did things during halftime at the games and all kinds of things like that. But it gave me a, a really good opportunity to start learning some leadership skills. I'd done a few things before then in different school opportunities and things, but that was, that was a big one for me to stand on the stage in front of the whole student body and say or do things was absolutely the most frightening thing to me. And yet I had to, so you could kind of figure out a way to do that. And again, late later, I was so grateful that I had to deal with all of those fears earlier in my life and try and turn them into skills instead. But so I loved, I loved high school. I got to do that. It's actually, that is also where I first met my husband, although we didn't date in high school. And Ah. so, so it's a great tie back for me to what a lot of what came next in my life. That is awesome. You get through high school. What came next? Well, so I, I said, I wanted to be a teacher and I didn't think that uh, that was going to be something that would happen for me because right out of high school, my parents were supporting uh, missionaries and a couple of older kids in college doing what they could to help them with their expenses. And I had some of my plans for college fall through kind of at the last minute. Mm. 
So instead of uh, pursuing that avenue of learning, I fell headlong into um, the school of life <laughs> and, <laughs> and ended up just getting some work to, to get by thinking I'd be saving to go to college. And, and I didn't ever end up doing that. I ended up working. And so I started just in a department store, not a great job, except that it was some money and got me started that way. But one of, one of the lessons that I'd like to mention that has a golden thread that has gone through my life is it's not always what you know, it's who. I have some wonderful who's in my life who have had pivotal roles at different times. And so from that department store, a who, a good friend of mine, um, knew about an opening where she was working and it was an insurance company. And I decided to take the leap because I'd make twice as much money and not have as many expenses. And I ended up with a 10-year career there. And it it gave me another opportunity where I was hired in an entry-level job and was blessed. I can say that now. Within two years to be managing the department that I wow. was hired in. And it's partly because that working hard sort of thing. I couldn't stand to not be busy. They were paying me. So I figured, well, I finished my work. Who needs help? And I ended up learning most of the positions in the department and just kind of sort of moved up. And there were some things that happened that made it so that I ended up being a supervisor for a time when I was like 20. It was crazy to think about that. And the women that had been my bosses were working under me at that time. So there were all kinds of wonderful lessons to learn from that. Um, and then I, I did that for a little while until I got married. And then I ended up going back to that same company and working part-time for a while until I had 10 years in all together. How did you end up reconnecting with your husband? Well, so we, we grew up in the same state. He lived in our state, but I didn't know him uh, until we were in high school. And I just knew of him at the time. And he was a jock. And as I said, I was a... Uh, he was a very gifted athlete. He played all of the sports and everyone knew him and he was kind and he was fun and he had a lot of friends, but I, I didn't date him. I just knew him enough to say hello. And that was about it. After his mission, um, I was, that's when I was working in the department store, but another one of the who's in my life, uh, a wonderful woman who is now my sister-in-law um, encouraged him to take me out and we ended up eventually going out on his birthday and we were engaged about four months later and married <laughs> about seven months after that first day. Love it. That's and, great. And one of the things about it, about him that is just, for me, it was almost like I didn't meet him and get to know him. It was like we were getting together because I feel I've always known him. You're getting ready to start a family and all the big things that, uh, that happen at that age. Where did that take you? Well, we kind of always wanted a big family and we didn't wait very long. We ended up having our first daughter after about a year and a half of marriage. So Annie came along to us. She was darling and perfect. After Annie was born, um, I had a couple of failed pregnancies that kind of reduced my chances to have children, or at least that's what we thought. I finally got pregnant after four years and had our second daughter, Katie, and we were just thrilled because this is not mm. something we thought we were going to get to do. Wonderful. 
19 months after that, we miraculously had twin girls, Kelly and Christy. And yes, they were a surprise and a priceless blessing. And then two years after that, we had our youngest daughter, Melissa. So we had four in three and a half years that we didn't think we were going to get to have. What a great opportunity that was. I always thought that uh, I felt totally inadequate with jobs that I did. Well, little did I know how inadequate I would feel to be a mother. And especially Mm. not just to be a mom, but to be their mom, because they're pretty amazing they're pretty amazing daughters of God, each one of them. And, and I knew it. And so I was felt really blessed to be home with them. And we had to be fine with having not much because we were, those were lean, lean years for us, for sure. But we worked together and we did it. And I was so grateful to get to share that parenthood path with Buck because he made it a lot easier for sure. So at some point, I know that, uh, that getting involved in, in service comes into your life in a big way. Let me go back to Annie because she kind of sets it up for so many things that then happened. Uh, We were, when she was born, we were pretty typical parents. You know, you count all the fingers and toes and you think everything looks perfect. And, and she was, and she was just darling and she was bright and she was inquisitive. She was always in the middle of everything, watching and touching and learning and doing, even as a tiny baby, she just, she just, was so aware of everything around her. Uh, I was working right then while Buck was in school for a while. And that same dear sister-in-law who talked my husband into taking me out uh, was tending uh, Anne for a time while I was working. And she noticed some things about Annie that were important milestones for the development of children. And she was particularly sensitive to some things because she lived with a hereditary hearing loss herself. And she kind of noticed that Annie didn't seem to be responding to a lot of the loud noises that occur when there are other children there. She had her own kids and a couple she provided daycare for and mentioned to me that she was a little worried about that. She said, if you notice that Annie doesn't you know, startled to loud noises and told me about some things that had happened that day. And, you know, I have to tell you that the denial is not just a river in Africa. It It plays a role for many of us in times when we're facing something that feels scary or foreign or new or different. Um, But we really then had to attend to it and noticed ourselves within a short period of time that yeah, she's something's going on here. And and yeah, we noticed enough then that we ourselves then took some steps to see if we could figure out what was going on. And kind of a long story short, within a few months, Annie was diagnosed as being deaf. She has what is called a profound hearing loss or a deafness, which means pretty much that she has virtually no hearing of her own. Um, so we were kind of prepared for them to tell us that she didn't hear everything. We kind of figured that out. She didn't always respond to noise, but she's a bright kid and had already started to accommodate her own needs with Mm. this. And about 50% of the time you could walk into a room and say her name and she'd turn on cue. So she had learned to use even all of our other senses to be so aware of her surroundings that she could do that. So I thought, oh, for sure, she's going to have some hearing. Well, we weren't quite ready for that no hearing. But I have to tell you that it was one of those things that then again, as we think back, remember, I said how she was in the middle of everything. She learned by seeing and by doing. And so she, she, that totally made sense. She was always holding our cheeks and 
getting us to look at her when she talked to us and she'd turn your head. And again, we just thought it was this darling thing. She could sleep through anything. Mm. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. But yeah, also had to get her to close her eyes, which was a trick. So again, that's the way she learned. So all of it made sense. So this hearing loss then took us, I, I mean, we were devastated. I, and Annie has heard me tell this story so many times that I tell her, you have to understand that devastation had nothing to do in the judgment about you. Right. It was course. because of our love for you and, mm-hmm. and all of the things we didn't know about this, that we needed to figure it out. And, and we still don't know what caused her hearing loss, but we do know that it's one of the things that makes her the absolutely extraordinary person that she is. So we cried about the things we didn't know. And then we got busy and tried to figure out the things that we could expect to have happen next. And it, I have to say, one of the things that I realized in a blessed way in a few days was that Annie wasn't different than she was the day before we heard, got the results of the hearing right. test. Annie is who Annie is. And she's pretty remarkable and capable. And to remember all of the things she can do, not that she just can't hear. So you want to go, she, then she can't, and she can't do this, and she can't do that. She can't hear, but she can do all of these things. It was a great thing for us to be reminded of that she was mm. still a pretty capable kid, even at 15 months old. So then we just got busy and got her into programs and things. And as I say, she went into full day programs. We started in our home first, but at two and a half, this is a baby toddling off down the driveway to get on transportation to go to school. Now I can say that there, here's another place where God was in our lives because uh, Annie uh, with her hearing loss was able to benefit for programs at a very young age that other disabilities didn't have available to them for the next almost 20 years. Mm. So she, she just happened to have one of those hearing loss uh, with a hearing loss that they had programs in place for her and what a blessing that was. Um, And in those programs, we found ourselves very quickly wanting to give back. I mean, I had so much to learn. We had so much to learn. And there were so many amazing, amazing professionals who taught us and held our hands and cried with us and loved us and pushed us to do the things, you know, don't baby her because of this either. You need to help her learn to, to do things. So while she's learning all of these things, I we kind of wanted to get back. And so I started to volunteer in her classroom or just do what little bits I could. And then I ended up being the president of the parent-teacher organization that they had at the Utah Schools for the Deaf. And um, uh, during that time, I also helped to found a coalition of parents to work with the school administration and helping the school get what the school needed to serve our kids. So we just always were pulling people together, learning from people, being with people, and then doing what we could to have all of that work for the betterment of things, to make things the best that we could while we were there. And that also included an opportunity at one point for me to be on what was called the Institutional Council for the School for the Deaf. And that's like a school district board. of uh, board. Um, and we were under the State Board of Education. Every one of those opportunities just stretched me and stretched me quickly. The night that I was appointed actually to serve on that institutional council, they elected me to chair it. 
and I didn't know how to do Robert's Rules of Order. This is kind of an interesting thing. But beside that, it was during the time when they were closing the historical campuses in Ogden that had been there since the 1800s. So there was a lot of emotion involved and a lot of people that we needed to hear and understand. And um, it stretched me in ways that I never believed. And that all came from just wanting to give back to the programs that helped Danny. It was not because I thought I knew things other people didn't. I, again, sat there at that table thinking, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to run this meeting. I don't know how to interact with these people. I don't know how to do these things. And you figure it out and you do it. God's in it. It was through those associations that I got to know and appreciate some of the people that have been lifelong friends and mentors, including it's about that time when I met Robin. I think it was within a few years of that time that she and I ran into each other testifying at the legislature. We did those things. And Annie did that with me, which led her to later be a great self-advocate and to work in the deaf community for the things she needs and wants. And I think we should mention for our listeners, when you, when you bring up uh, Robin, that we're talking about Robin Chittister, who is Jean's wife. Jean, our producer is on the call with us today. And Robin is the most wonderful person. So you got to meet all of these people that you got to serve with. At the School for the Deaf is actually how I came to know about this other organization that I became involved in. I have a great friend and mentor of mine, a a woman who's just ahead of us down that path of raising kids with hearing loss, um, actually had three of her own. She was invited to serve on the board of directors for an organization called the Utah Parent Center. And she called me one day and she said, you know, I'm working with this new organization and we've arranged with the School for the Deaf to come and do some workshops. And and I think you'll, you know, like them. It's got some really good information in it. And actually, the lady that's going to come and do the training has a hearing loss herself and she has children who are deaf. So she really understands kind of our path and our issues and things a little bit. And she's, you know, would you think about coming? And and I loved her dearly and I would have done anything for her. And going to a workshop was an easy thing to do. So I went to the first workshop for her and then I went to the rest of them for me. It it, it was it was a eye-opening thing. I I got questions, answers to questions I didn't even know I had. And that was uh, something I was really grateful for. And that was a a wonderful experience. And again, I met more people to be doing things together. We bonded as more parents that were involved in that. But here I got this attachment, as it were, to this new organization. And I thought, oh, here's another place maybe I can give back. So I was recruited to be a volunteer for the Utah Parent Center. And it was brand new at that point. A few years old was all. They had just finished their training materials and were just trying them out. And we were kind of the guinea pigs in those early years. And it it was just fledgling. And um, I just said, well, what can I do to help? So they trained me as a volunteer to help other parents. So I would go to meetings and things with families and start to coach them. But again, I was still learning. But by this time, Annie's about eight. So I, I kind of had a few things under my belt a little bit. But it was uh, just people, some of those who's in my life, opening doors and creating opportunities for me to step into that I wasn't looking for, but were there and and 
uh, God was in it <laughs> and helped me to find my way to him. But um, so I was a volunteer and within just a few months, they had an opening and I got to start working for them 15 hours a week. And I figured I could do that. That's, that's manageable. And then there was a change in their administration there. And I was asked to be the interim director during this traumatic time for the organization, changing the leadership position. And I was the newest person in the center. I was brand new to the organization. There were people that had been there from the beginning, wonderful, skilled, amazing women. But for some reason, they asked me to do it. And I cared about the organization. So I said, I'm not looking for full-time work, but I'll, this matters to me. So I'll help out for a little while. My intent was that I would maybe do this for a couple of years and retired after 30. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it really, it did end up mattering a lot to me. And I did choose eventually to apply for the position of the executive director. I was just interim for a time. So, so tell us some of the things that uh, the Utah Parent Center does. You know, one of the things that I've loved about the Parent Center from the very beginning, one of the things that drew me to it as an organization is the fact that it is built on the idea that there is value in peer relationships. So shared life experiences kind of position you in a unique way to be trusted and understood by someone else. And so if we sit down with another parent, I think so often of my own experiences, but meeting with families that would come into room and they, you could almost just feel the weight of the world just shift or at least drift away a little bit because they think these people get me. I, you know, I, they understand something about this. We have this golden thread and maybe our kids, certainly our kids are involved the same. They might even have the same diagnosis. They might not, but they kind of get this. They, they're dealing with something that I'm dealing with. I loved, always loved the fact that this was a parent-to-parent and a family-to-family model. And that is still essentially true. I do believe they have some programs now that they use um, other, other folks who bring so much in their uh, professional training and other things too, that they are so valuable to the organization. But I, I always loved that, that it was this was the together we can figure out what I know that will be helpful to you and um, ways of working with people so that you don't have to fight about things so that we can um, feel empowered with what you know about your child. Because we as parents know things about our kids that nobody else knows. And even if they're in a school program or for special services and things, we're the only ones that see our kids program to program year to year. Right. Uh, doesn't mean we have all the answers, but we know stuff in a way that nobody else does. And I always, I always felt that I was valued in working with professionals. I always did. And so I believed that that's the way it should be and that we can figure out ways to have things work better. But so that was one of the things, the other Beautiful. thing, and one of the other things for me was that in, in the staff that we had, um, we had school teachers, we had folks who were therapists, trained therapists, we had social workers, we had, and they all had kids with disabilities, different disabilities, different ages. And in order to be there uh, on staff at the time that I was the director and work with families, you, that was a requirement. That was one of the 
qualifications for the job. You have to have a kid with a disability. Beautiful. Oh, I love that so much. And to be clear, we're talking about running the gamut of parental issues. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. there's no, Mm -hmm. this is not a very specific center. This is you're a parent. You've got children who you're trying to figure things out as to, to be the best parent. We have resources. Running the center as a community-based organization and having the funding that we did, this was not a religious-based thing. We clearly, one of the things that drew me to it is some of what I talked about and the values that it was based on, that we all have value, that everyone has something to contribute. Everyone can learn. These are things that came to us from the prophets, as well as um, our life experiences that teach us so much about it. But these are values and things that I saw within this organization. So while religion couldn't be the basis of it, and many of us felt we were brought to this organization for a reason, mm. and we hoped that we could live up to that reason. Um, I, I just had so many experiences over the years in working with families because, again, they have such wonderful strengths that sometimes when you're beat down and trying to figure everything out, and, and feeling uh, not very capable at it, to have someone tell you that you're doing a good job, that you're a good mom or a good dad, and that you, yeah. you're, you can figure things out and let's, let's take things a step at a time and figure out which things to do next. Um, all of that is, it clearly has a very strong spiritual aspect to it for many of us. And we draw on prayer, we draw on inspiration, we draw on other things as ways to help us be better at what we do in those mm. in those roles and and again we as an employer you know anymore you can't you don't do that stuff in the workplace yeah. too much but we did have we had a wonderfully diverse work workforce the the women and the workforce mostly women we did have a few men but most men couldn't afford to work for the nonprofit we didn't pay very much but um it was almost all of our staff was also part time because they all had these kids with high needs and so it let them, you know, have their foot in a place to help others and learn from what they learned. But there is such a critical element for many of us. I can tell you that I would not have ever been able to do that for the years that I did, were it not for a, a being sustained in multiple ways by um, by the spirit, by my loved ones, by so many different things that made that doable. I always said I would never work that hard for something that I cared any less about. Um, and, and I kind of, I'm really honest when I tell you it wore me out, yeah. but at the same time, what a great way to be worn out. Uh, <laughs> so how rewarding was it to see parents walk in on the brink I've, I, we've all had friends who were at, at a younger stage than we were, who we, we have people regularly come to us and go, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. You see parents, to see parents come in on the brink, thinking there's no hope, and then to get the resources, the support, and just to know that they're doing okay. How rewarding is that to see oh, those parents make that change? I, I, there is. It's priceless. It's absolutely priceless. It's the best pay you could ever get to have somebody say, 
I can do that. I Now I know what to do. Thanks for letting me kind of unload with the whole big thing and helping me identify the, the next steps, the next things to do. And thank you for letting me know I can come back again. Because one of the other things that we worked so hard to do, and this is still relatively true, I believe it's almost entirely true at the Parent Center, is that the services need to be free to families. Now, we went through a time where everybody said, oh, you've got to charge for it or they won't value it. Um, we didn't ever think that was the case. There are so many financial challenges often for yeah. families who have uh, kids with with special needs, the all kinds of extra costs and things that they don't anticipate. But we we were always there. They knew they when they called to ask questions, they were going to be talking to another parent and it didn't cost them anything. And they didn't have to have an appointment. We weren't on call 24-7 by any means we do what we could to accommodate folks when they needed to do it but um that was so important to us and to be able to say for them to say i know what to do next it i it just was the best payday ever ever so beautiful and then after 30 years it was time to let go how hard was it to (laughs) how hard is it to let that go 30 years of your life making such (sighs) a difference in thousands of people's lives you know, I was, I had so many things to be grateful for about my experiences there, not the least of which I got to be a teacher. <laughs> um, and when, when I went in, we really only had one funding source. It was a federal grant. And over the period of those years, it was a slow kind of steady growth, but we did manage to end up with, I don't know, in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 funding sources. And and a budget that was about 10, 12 times as big as it was when we started Mm. from lots of agencies that are invested in families, lots of people who would donate and make things possible. But it was one of the things that that I got to do in all of that is for a long time, we, you wore 10 hats when we started this. And so I was writing the grants and then I was helping do the services because that's how we had to do things. And so I got to train and do a lot of the workshops and meet with families, which was just the best. And then it took on another um, level of interest for me because these, this center is like, there's one, at least one like it in every state that has one particular funding source, but they, they're kind of a network as it were, they're not really affiliated Mm. directly, but we would get together for training meetings and other things And I got to travel the whole country training other trainers, teaching other people doing this work, how to do it. I just had developed a couple of little skills that seemed to be useful. And so I got the chance to do that. And so I got to be a teacher. And I also got to go places where invariably you find out you're from Utah and you know what the questions are going to be, right? Sure. <laughs> and, and and they would, so I'd be asked all the time if I was a member of the church and I'd, I'd love to answer that. Yes, I was a practicing member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And one of these days I'm going to get it right. I'll keep practicing <laughs> until I do. <laughs> um, I love it. And, and the next question was they'd find out about my five kids, which was just, oh, that's such a big family. Right. And, and they also want to know if I was my husband's only wife. I get that question also. Yes. So I said, oh, yeah, he can handle more than one of me. <laughs> I always jokingly answer, uh, yes, she's my only wife, but we're looking into more husbands because uh, I do not like mowing lawns. There are a bunch of repairs that need to be done. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
but but uh, it was out it was a door opener and one of the things about that that became so remarkable was again you identify how many people you have um things in common with right that don't have to do with where you're from or your religion or anything else throughout this network of people and friends that I developed all across the country shared values and truthful principles and things that were the underpinnings of this work mm. that, you know, weren't related to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but that we could find again, another golden thread that we sort of uh, were linked with. But I, I was, I would never call myself a missionary by any means, but it was, I was always a, great privilege to have conversations with people of all different kinds of backgrounds and all different beliefs and to find those wonderful golden threads. It was just such a, such a treat. Well, you are, while you are no longer officially attached, I know you have a great passion for uh, (laughs) the parent center. If people, uh, if people want to find out more about the Utah parent center, uh, what's the best way for them to find out? Well, the best way probably is to go to their website and it's, just put in utahparentcenter.org. I'll spell that out. Yeah. Um, and, and it'll take you right to it. And it gives you a good description and pick up the phone or send an email or a text or whatever. They have a lot of wonderful resources on their website that you can access 24 seven. They're using all the technology that they can, but that a voice at the other end of the uh, line is also a, a great comfort sometimes to know I'm okay. I'm talking to somebody that I can really feel safe in saying all the things that I'm worried about and can't do or think I can't do. We used to always say it's not one of the taglines any longer attached to the parent center, but we always said if you have if your child has special needs, so do you. Mm. And I, and I oh, also I love that. I always used to say that two people would say, well, what special needs does your daughter have? And I'd say, well, which daughter and which special needs? Because I really think they all, of course, all of our children have special needs. Annie just happened to have one that qualified it as, as a disability. Right. But um, that, again, is one of the blessings and challenges of being a parent, isn't it? But the Parent Center, again, has lots of resources available to folks. And there are lots of things in that parent to parent, in that parents helping other parents, Mm -hmm. whatever that definition is, because that's the other thing that we knew as we started the work when I was involved there, but has changed so much more over time that it's anybody that's in that role. You know, we have so many grandparents raising kids and, and families look different and, and they're all good and wonderful. And, and um, so whoever's in that role, you have the opportunity to call and get some help there. And they're amazing. And the woman that um, came in in my stead um, is taking it to a whole new level. I, it's so exciting to see and hear the things that they're doing. And and I'm so grateful for them. What a blessing. Well, and I will say as a, a parent who struggled myself, uh, even if you're outside of Utah, find help. There are people and especially mentors when you can get peer-to-peer help. Mm-hmm. I've been in a position where I've been the recipient of that kind of help. And I've been very blessed, uh, you know, maybe at this stage to be able to offer some of that help mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. And Helen, what a beautiful life you've had and you've touched the lives of so many. This has just been so wonderful hearing about your journey. We're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? 
Well, I may be one of your longer answers in, in this. You mentioned earlier that some are brief answers and some are a little bit longer. But, you know, what it means to me is that that I always have the opportunity to learn. So some of the things that I've learned is that God is interested in me personally and and in us as his children. And, and he'll bless us and he'll lead us and guide us in all aspects of our lives, even when we don't know that they, he might be preparing us for something next that we don't even anticipate or can't see or, or don't understand the whys of, you know, why does my child have a disability or why this or whatever? He knows those things, and every one of us matters to him. And one of the things I learned in my work, especially, and through having this wonderful daughter um, that has a disability, uh, everyone matters, and everyone can learn. Everyone has something to contribute and something to do. And that has as much to do with my faith as it does with my professional experience or skills or knowledge. Um, my faith is one of the most important things to me, certainly, and seeing how God has been in my life and how he has prepared me without me even knowing what was going to, what my opportunities were going to be, that I also have a great testimony that he blesses us through others and he blesses others through us, that great reciprocity of you know, what can I do for you and what can you do for me and how can we help each other and how can we bless each other's lives? I I learned a long time ago that prayer is such an important part of my life. I, I pray often. I have a testimony of this. I know I need, I need the Savior. I need the Lord in my life. And I feel like I've always known. Um, I Again, I was blessed to be raised in a home where I was taught right from the beginning, all of these things, but I feel I've always known that it was true. I've always known and felt and understood what my relationship was with my Savior. Um, in this lifetime of becoming, I, I've appreciated, you know, we're so so deeply flawed and so human and so not perfect. Um, I'm grateful for all of the people along the way that are the who's that have kind of helped me to get to different places, but that have had to give and get forgiveness certainly over time. And, and I'm certain I need it still. Um, but I also know that the Lord will use us. I think if we'll prepare and we'll take advantage of opportunities and life experiences that come to us, the, the Lord can and will see us. He'll use us. He'll take advantage of that. Um, you know, there's a great quote from President Nelson. I think it's a great quote. He says that um, the Lord loves effort because effort brings rewards that can't come without it. Well, if effort counts, I always try to give my best. <laughs> so I hope there are some points for that somewhere. I think of my mom and dad and being a Latter-day Saint for me. And I think I, I have the privilege right now of in my flawed way serving as a Relief Society president. And I've appreciated in these last couple of years, boy, what a crazy time we live in, how much being a Latter-day Saint means accepting responsibility for ourselves and for our own testimony and for the state of our faith, for our the need to ever strive. I'm not just do try to, to be striving to know and follow Christ. Um, I think it means following the prophet, and I think it means that we know 
where we are in this last dispensation, that we have a good sense of that. We're all going to have a rough time in our lives. We're all going to have joy. We're all going to have um, um, opportunities that come from, I believe, our striving and trying to do that. I think, though, that this is how we learn. This is how we're going to get back to our Heavenly Father. And my faith has sustained me through all of my life, through all those challenges and successes, all the things that I didn't know and needed to learn through grief and through joy and day in and day out. I always know my Savior's there. He's in it. Beautiful. She is a mother. She is a wife. Uh, she is one who has taught, has served, and has blessed the lives of so, so many and she's a pretty darn amazing daughter of God. <laughs> Helen Post, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And my special thanks to my guest, Helen Post. Isn't she just amazing? I love true servants. That's who she is. She is a true servant. And uh, I just know how important the center and Helen's work has been. And thank you again so much, Helen. Uh, this week in my Latter-day life, I went to Disneyland this weekend. I actually took uh, our son, David, who is 27 years old, as well as my son, Keaton, who is 18. And we went Spent the weekend there and just had a ball. I will tell you, Disneyland was so packed. And I know a lot of you uh, who live in Utah are going to be going to Disneyland for spring break sometime in the next week or two. It's wonderful. It's a great time of year to be there. Weather was incredible. But my goodness, the parks were just so full. But we had the time of our lives. There is a reason that Disneyland is called the happiest place on earth. And on the second day that we were there, we were walking from our hotel. We stay off site. It's about a half a mile walk over to the parks. And we were walking and we were just so giddy. And one of the things I love is you see kids everywhere. And they're wearing their Disney-themed shirts or Star Wars or Marvel, whatever it is. And they're just jumping up and down. Cannot wait to get into the park. And then all of a sudden, we just heard screaming and crying and we could tell it was a little kid. And you know when little kids, uh, he was a little older than than toddler, you know. Uh, but you know when little kids really kind of just lose it and they start screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> That's what he was doing. And it was just heartbreaking. And uh, he was walking along with uh, who I would guess was his mom. Uh, she looked like she'd be his mom. And she was trying to help him stand up, and he was not having it. He was throwing himself on the ground, and he was saying she was walking too fast, and that he was tired, and that she was hurting him when she was grabbing his hand. And my heart went out for my heart went out to him and his mother actually. Uh, and his mother was frustrated, and she started yelling, "Fine, we won't go to Disneyland then today." And he said, "I want to go to Disneyland." And she said, "Then get up and start walking." And he said, "No, you hurt me." And it was just a mess. And they were both eventually just screaming. And we saw security guards walking toward us. They were coming over to make sure everyone was okay. But it was really quite a scene. And we walked right past them. I uh, didn't feel like it was my place to interject and no one was being harmed or anything, but they definitely were not having the best start of the morning for what you would consider so much fun, Disneyland. 
Now, having uh, eight kids of my own and having done so many Disney trips, I can say that while I don't think we've ever screamed at each other, we've had some meltdowns, we've had some fall-aparts, and you see it in the parks at times. But this one was specifically just rough. And it just got me to thinking that morning as we were walking, my sons and I were saying, man, how can you be so upset at somewhere so magical? And something so, a place that's so amazing and so wonderful. And for us, that's everything. But they were really having a rough day. And I've pondered that about how, to me, I don't know how you have a rough day at Disneyland. I mean, I just don't think I've ever had a bad one. Even if my kids have gone through some things and, you know, have been tired or whatever it is, I still have a wonderful time. But I got to thinking about this in the context of the gospel, that as we are trying to expand the church and welcome everybody to come inside, we need to make room for the fact that maybe things that are uh, amazing and magical and wonderful to us might not be for everybody. And we have to allow that. We have to allow space for people to be able to express themselves for the parts of the gospel that they either don't like or don't understand or struggle with or whatever it is. You know, I find it interesting when we talk about temples. And, you know, we talk about the temple. We love the temple. Of course, the temple is amazing. For some people, when we talk about temples, there might be some pain attached when they think about maybe someone who isn't sealed to them, who they wish was sealed to them, or a time when they weren't able to go through the temple. And when we talk about families being forever, for some people, they don't want to be with their families forever. Maybe someone was abusive or whatever it is. Or when we talk about, you know, parents and the importance of parents. And, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I have adopted six children who all have tricky relationships with their parents. And there are parts of the gospel that we think, man, it's, this is the best part of it. And everyone must think it's the best part of it. But we need to give people grace and space to love the parts of the gospel that they love and to figure out the rest. I remember years ago, on Mother's Day, I was asked to give the opening prayer and sacrament meeting. And as I stood up, uh, of course, I wanted to express gratitude for mothers. And I have an amazing relationship with my own mother, with, of course, my, you know, my wife, the mother of my children. And as I stood up there, I felt very strongly inspired uh, to ask Heavenly Father to also bless those for whom Mother's Day is difficult for maybe people who had recently lost their mother or don't have a good relationship with their mother or don't know who their mother is or for whatever reason that Mother's Day, even if it's wonderful to them, if there's some pain and it might be a little bit difficult for them. I had multiple people come up to me, four or five people came up to me uh, after sacrament meeting and thanked me because they felt alone in this thought that, uh, you know, they, they struggle with whatever part of it is that Mother's Day represents for them. And they were so grateful. We need to be able to speak up about these things. You know, for years I carried guilt (laughs) about the fact that I do not like scouting. I find the value in it. I see the value. I have three sons who are Eagle Scouts, and I see tremendous value in it. But I don't like camping, and I don't like doing merit badges. I don't like building fires unless they're in a a barbecue. I don't like that. I'm not that guy. And so I dreaded campouts. I like going out with my sons and with friends from the ward, but going on a campout where other people were so excited 
And at one point, I was told that I needed to, by a member of the ward, I'm not sure how serious he was, but that I needed to repent and gain a testimony because it was the official program of the church and that my negativity towards scouting was basically being negative toward the church. Well, I was working things out. I was trying to figure it out. And like I said, I have three sons who are Eagle Scouts that I supported, and I went to many scouting things. But I needed that space to be able to work through what parts of it I could embrace right then at the time and what I struggled with. And the last thing we need is when somebody expresses, hey, I'm having a hard time with this part of the church. The last thing that person needs is to be told that they're wrong. Instead, we need more compassion. We need more understanding. And I wish I could go back uh, to Catella, the street that I was walking along, and give that kid a big hug and tell him it's going to be okay and tell him what I love about Disneyland. And I wish I could give that mother a hug and tell her that there are rough times, but it gets, I don't know if it gets easier, but it definitely gets better and kids get older as I walked along with my 18 and my 27-year-old. And we had the time of our lives. And usually when I go to church, I have the time of my life. It's a wonderful place. And we all need to give each other just that little bit of space if it maybe isn't the happiest place on earth in every single way. God has put us here on this earth and has given us this incredible gospel so that we can lift others up and understand them better. And a little bit of understanding and a little bit of compassion sure goes a long, long way. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for listening again this week. We really appreciate it. If you know someone who would enjoy the show, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with them, we would be so grateful. The Latter-day Lives podcast is produced by Gene Chittister. Social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier. I think that's all we've got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>